All right, today we're going to continue with uh, something we started a few weeks ago, and then I missed two weeks of teaching, although I, I missed one Sunday because I was sick. Uh, last Sunday I asked Jason to share a second time just because uh, Saturday I was still sick enough that I didn't want to spend the hours. Uh, I felt if I spent the hours preparing the message, I, I might not be strong enough to come on Sunday morning. So last Sunday morning I was here, but Jason shared. And then... Uh, just so you're reminded of what we so what we started, I guess three weeks ago, was we're continuing with our eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series, and we're on element seven now of the eight, and they're listed under Roman numeral one. And element seven is the pattern of the first five steps uh, entering into the kingdom of God. If you go through the New Testament, especially the Book of Acts, and you see the seven different times that the Holy Spirit uh, chose through Luke to preserve for us a record of, of uh, a group of people coming to Christ, uh, you'll notice uh, that there's a pattern that de- develops that's very clear and that's, that when people came to Christ, at the beginning of their Christian walk, they were born again or they received Jesus Christ uh, uh, they were converted. Secondly, they were water baptized. And thirdly, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, in other cases, they also received inner healing or physical healing in a number of cases and deliverance from demonic spirits. And um, always they entered a fifth step, which was to enter a Christian way of life. And a Christian way of life is kind of a twofold direction. One is that uh, through spiritual disciplines, each person has a p- kind of a private individual uh, encounter with God every day and, and prepares their spirit to grow in sanctification and and so forth and knowledge and wisdom. Uh, and secondly, that relationship was daily shared in Christian community. And so... Um, somebody's car alarm is going off. So uh, that shared relationship uh, was not just shared on the Lord's Day, but it was shared from house to house and taking their meals together. Acts 2.42 is a great, you know, famous verse. A lot of people like to speak on that they were de- uh, committed to, or uh, the, the Greek word devoted is a strong, strong word. They were very intent on the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and the prayers. And they did this daily from house to house together. And so uh, what what being committed to the apostles' teaching means, the apostles actually taught uh, the Christological aspects of the Old Testament because there wasn't any New Testament written yet. And what they taught became the New Testament as various letters and accounts of, of the life of Christ and so forth were written for us. So that was the fifth step. So we're kind of looking at that for a season, and we're going to actually do kind of within that, we're going to do a mini-series uh, on step three, baptizing the Holy Spirit. Uh, and today we're on chapter two of that, so that coincides with uh, 7D or element 7D of our eight essentials. So there's going to be kind of two series is running simultaneously for the next 11 weeks or so. Um, 
Then we're going to do a series on deliverance from demon spirits and uh, the reality of that, because that's not practiced much in, in Western Christianity today, but was a normal thing in the ministry of Christ and should be normative. Uh, there's no reason to expect that the truth of the matter is he was living in a, Christ was ministering in a more godly culture overall than our culture, and about 25 to 33% of his ministry was casting out demons. So there's no, there's no way you can dismiss that. You know, uh, the truth is the fact that we don't do that very much means our Christianity is sub-biblical. There's no other explanation that's really that feasible. Uh, Jesus wasn't accommodating the psychological backwardness of the people of his day who hadn't discovered modern psychology yet. To believe that would be to deny his lordship. And, uh, you know, we, we're not, uh, those demons didn't all go away because we're more sophisticated now or something like that. The fact is, we're just in a tremendous culture of skepticism, natural mindedness, and unbelief in the West today. And very few people know much about spiritual realities. So we'll do a whole series about that within this Element 7. And then we're going to uh, finally do a little bit of a series on what is the church in Element 7. So, uh, look at Roman numeral one. What I've done in kind of lighter print, uh, in italics and brackets to the right, is kind of give you a review of what we've covered so far and when it was posted on the podcast. At the end of this outline, you can uh, it tells you where you can get copies of these outlines. And if you get one from Stephen uh, by email, uh, you will get... Uh, the portion that's lighter print and, and italicized uh, will actually be in red for you. Um, so we don't print with color at, at, at uh, our offices. So um, just down here at the church. So anyway, if you'll notice, after element six, whether I should have or shouldn't have, I probably should have just waited till you're done with the series, but I did uh, a review of elements one through six and then a preview of elements seven and eight, and I spent 12 messages on that, and that's so, so that we would have sort of a shorter version of the Eight Essential Elements uh, series for, the, you know, for people who wouldn't want to listen to a, to a you know, series that's 120 to 150 parts. We're on part 86 today, so uh, here we go. Um, element seven, as you see, was previewed. There's very, two concepts you want to take into element seven. Uh, the, uh, one is that what we really have to do is we have to understand that um, there's a critical difference between the average Christian experience today and what's biblically normative. And we can't assume that the Christianity that we've grown up in or seen has anything to do necessarily with the Bible's way of life. And what we really kind of need is a rethink on on how much of our so-called biblical Christianity is actually biblical. There was no people who'd ever lived more committed to studying the scriptures than the people from, say, Galilee during the time of, that Christ was on the earth. And the scripture emphasizes over and over that this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as their doctrines the, the teachings of men. And all the expectations that were common in Israel about the Messiah 
and about the Lord Emmanuel, God coming with us, uh, as John taught us when he did his elementary uh, Christology series, when he covered Acts chapter 2, all the popular expectations of the kingdom of God, who the king would be, the Messiah, all of them were completely unbiblical. And we're really facing that kind of a situation today in much of the church. And uh, the more you get into studying the scripture, the more you'll see that it's that uh, most people have told me that for the first two or three years they came here, they thought I was uh, exaggerating too much and, uh, <laughs> and that it, wasn't, it couldn't possibly be that bad. And, but the people who have taken time to study it have come to see that it really is that bad. So... Um, then we looked at uh, five different ways of looking at uh, five different ways of approaching the idea that there's patterns that we should be looking for. And then again, we, as we already covered, we said that these five steps are the pattern. So flip over and we'll get into today's material. Today again is element 7D, which is step three of the first five steps. We're doing a little mini, mini, mini series on this. We're also calling this uh, the Baptizing the Holy Spirit 2017 series because we did it in 2012 in four parts, and we're going to expand it to seven parts here. Uh, the first section of, the, of this series, which will be probably around six of the chapters, uh, we're asking, we're kind of trying to step back and look at the bigger picture. What, I, uh, what this church seems to have been given a ministry of Time after time, probably half the people who sit in the pews of our church are people who were raised believing the gifts of the Spirit are not for today, and uh, they had been taught cessationist doctrine, which is we'll, we'll be actually covering uh, for one of the messages here, we'll be covering the three major perspectives on the Holy Spirit in, in conservative Protestantism today. One is called cessationism, one is called the third wave, and one is the charismatic or pro-baptism in the Spirit perspective. And we'll be looking at those three ways of approaching the Holy Spirit as one of the teachings around, uh, around uh, Message 7, somewhere in there. I'll have a schedule for us next week. But um, what we're trying to basically say is, why do we need a greater knowledge of the Holy Spirit and a greater experience of Him? Okay? And uh, that's what I'm trying to do in the sort of the first half of this series. So today, chapter 2, last week we looked at who is the Holy Spirit, and we looked at eight uh, word pictures of the Holy Spirit, such as the Holy Spirit is depicted by fire and water and so forth, and uh, I'm not going to review those today, but um, we went into all of those. Uh, today we're going to talk about the person of the Holy Spirit, which is... Uh, if you were a theologian, you might call that the ontological Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about what that means in a minute. Okay, so the first thing that I want everyone to know about the Holy Spirit, the starting point, is that the Holy Spirit is God. He's a co-equal member of the Trinity. He's often listed as the third person of the Trinity, but we're going to talk a little bit about that being not necessarily exactly a perfect way to talk about the Holy Spirit. Um. Many have pointed out that he's often neglected in modern conservative Christian circles, ignored or forgotten. There's actually one of the, one of the worst books I've ever read on the Holy Spirit. It's a book that was quite popular, uh, and uh, 
had a great title called The Forgotten God, and it's about the Holy Spirit from a uh, cessationist perspective. <laughs> and uh, goes to great lengths to uh, dismiss the pre presence, power, gifts, ministry, and person of the Holy Spirit, uh, even though it sets out not to do so, <laughs> allegedly. So and, uh, in any case, and it also unfortunately uh, espouses a doctrine of, of the Trinity called modalism, which is one of the heresies that those of you who have taken the ch church history should know, um, called Sabellianism as well. And uh, it's actually not even a Trinitarian view of the Holy Spirit. It's not within the bounds of Orthodox Christianity, even though it's a bestseller in evangelical circles. Um, so... Uh, the Holy Spirit has all attributes of the of deity, and so we're going to talk about the attributes of God for a little bit. If you remember in this series, essential element number one is the attributes of God, and we talked about some things there, and then we reviewed that for a week um, when we were doing the review part, so we've had a couple weeks about the attributes of God, although I'm going to cover it maybe a little differently today. So, um, the first thing I want to do is say there are three critical concepts that you need to understand when you're discussing the attributes of God, okay? The first is uh, not, as, not as hard to understand as it might sound. It's an attribute of God called the simplicity of God. Hopefully some of you who've taken our uh, systematic theology class know what that means by now. The simplicity of God is an idea that uh, Beth's cousin is very big on. I heard his lecture about this at Cedarville. And uh, what, not Caleb, what's the, Josh, no. Which is the older one? Caleb. Uh, Caleb had a very good lecture about the attributes of God that he discussed the simplicity of God, and we had quite a good discussion about it afterwards. Um, the simplicity of God is, is basically this. God is not dividable. So when we talk about the various attributes of God, such as he's eternal, or he's personal, or he's immutable, or whatever, we can talk about these things conceptually, but we can't really ever divide them. He, we can't ask God to come with his mercy and love and not come with his justice. Right? So you have, you know, today in what's called dispensationalist circles. In dispensationalism, you actually kind of have... Uh, an idea they wouldn't admit to, but it's really kind of espouses that there's a, a different God at different times of history <laughs> that that create that works with man in a different way. And many people who have that idea fall into another ancient heresy, heresy that basically says the God of the Old Testament is a bad guy, and the God of the New Testament is a wonderful guy. <laughs> and um, there was a heretic named Marcion who. Uh, Spouse that idea, and it's kind of neo-gnostic and uh, kind of neo-zoroastrian as well. But um, the idea uh, of that is kind of crazy. So in the, in the book of Acts, we see uh, the the apostles testifying greatly to the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, therefore the atonement. We see thousands of people coming into the kingdom of God, but we also see them proclaiming God's wrath that is coming to Jerusalem over and over and over again because they're clearly stating that you did not recognize the time of your visitation 
All Israelites in the day of Christ that were biblically knowledgeable were expecting two coming people. One was Emmanuel, God with us, and the other was the Messiah in Hebrew or the Christos in, in Greek, Mashiach or Christos. And Acts 2, Peter's message is Messiah was here, Christos is here, God made it clear, he made it manifest that Jesus was those, the two people you were expecting was really one person, Jesus Christ, and you killed him. And the wrath of God is going to come on Jerusalem within a generation for that. And over and over and over again in the book of Acts, they're proclaiming both the salvation of God and the coming wrath of God. And in Acts 5, we see two members of the, of the New Testament church, Ananias and Sapphira, lie to the Holy Spirit, and God kills them for it. And that's the merciful, loving God of the New Testament that's different than the merciful God of the Old Testament in people's imaginations today. So the simplicity of God is a very important doctrine because the fact is we can't, if we ask God to come have a visitation and pour out His Spirit, we've been experiencing a great outpouring of God's Spirit on Friday nights, and it's about to get stirred up quite a bit more. But God doesn't come just with His forgiveness or His mercy. He comes with all of who He is. So you can't uh, have a God a visitation of the Holy Spirit of God, for instance, and not have miracles in your midst. Because he's by definition spiritual, that is supernatural, supranatural. He's outside and above the natural dimension, and if his presence is among us, there will be supernatural activity. So you can't ask God to come with his mercy, but not his judgment. Lord, bring your forgiveness, but not your holiness. <laughs> um, as most Christians are kind of hoping for sometimes today. So that's why the prophets say over and over again, you, you pray for and, and, for and ask for the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Well, where are you? Because the day of the Lord is not going to be something you're going to want to see. Um, so... The second thing we need to understand about the attributes of God is the concept of God's being or, or his ontology versus his ministry or his economy. And again, unlike in dispensationalism that has seven different economies of God throughout history, there is one economy of God. There is one way that God works with man. Those people who came to know Christ and were redeemed in the Old Testament, from Adam to Abel, uh, to the, the Adam-Abel line all the way through Noah and all the way down to Abraham, were saved by faith. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. They were saved by faith in Christ in the coming atonement. Their faith looked forward. Our faith looks backward to, a, to an accomplished event. But it was faith in the same God with the same attributes who has, was proclaiming the same word. And uh, it, was a, it was a trusting in that word. And that was what reckoned Abraham and, and David and everyone else righteous. No one was ever saved by works, as is the common concept today. That Old Testament people were saved by works. And 
New Testament people are saved by faith. There was never anyone saved by works. So God's economy is uh, what you talk about when you're talking about the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and how they interact in redemptive outworkings of what Hebrews 13.20 calls the blood of the eternal covenant. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three persons, one being, one essence, had a covenant in, within that, that community of the one God. There was an eternal covenant that spelled out what each of them would do in God's eternal plan, which again, the popular concept today is God's eternal plan is all about redemption, but redemption is just a subset of God's overall covenant plans for his kingdom. Now, it's a very important concept in this subset, but, it's, but, it's, but God came to do more than restore paradise. He actually came so that man, by the Holy Spirit, and by the, the church, would actually do what Adam and Eve were originally called to do. In other words, he wouldn't just restore what Eden was, because Adam and Eve weren't supposed to just keep Eden the same. There were four rivers that went out from Eden, to the four corners of the earth, and they were supposed to export God's grace and God's and fruitful children who were made in the image of God and who were God-like ambassadors and princes and kings in the earth. They were supposed to fill the earth with people that were filled with God and, and full of his glory. And God is doing a lot more than restoring the Garden of Eden. God is doing a lot more than restoring all of the earth He's actually going to rebuild it in the way he intended it for, for, for man to rebuild it in the first place. So, um, again, when you talk about the person of God or the being of God, you're talking about a concept called ontology. And when you're talking about how the members of the Trinity relate in God's overall plan, you're talking about uh, economy. So we're going to in this series, we're going to look at the ontological Holy Spirit versus the economic Holy Spirit. Okay, hopefully everyone followed that. That's not as complex as you might think it is. Now, last week we looked at eight essential biblical word pictures of the Holy Spirit. And those word pictures are both ontological. They're a description of God's being, the fire, the water, the wine, the oil, uh, the dove, etc., and so they're ontological, but they also express what the Holy Spirit does, so they're also economic. So that when we're talking about the, the various word pictures of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, we're not able to separate those out as to whether they're about just about his being or, his, uh, or about what he does, because each word picture depicts both aspects of, of the Holy Spirit, both who he is and what he does. Does everyone get that? All right, so uh, today we're going to talk about the deity of the Holy Spirit, uh, and uh, that pertains to the being of God or to ontology, who he is, not so much what he does. Now, upcoming next week, we're going to start on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and then we're going to follow that by three weeks 
on the activities of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, then the activities of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, and the activities of the Holy Spirit after the closing in the New Testament in church history. And we're going to see that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so is the Holy Spirit. And he always has done what he's always done, and he always will do. We're going to actually see that the, the supernatural, spiritual, miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit that we see in the book of Acts, that we read about in 1 Corinthians 12, God did all of those through his people in the Old Testament, with the exception of speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues. All these other, Seven of the nine gifts of the Spirit were manifest in the, among the people of God, just not as frequently and just not as widespread is what the New Testament provision is. In the New Testament, all God's people are supposed to prophesy, speak in tongues, cast out demons, heal the sick, and be used in various spiritual gifts. Not just priests, prophets, and princes, and teachers, and so forth, because all God's people are supposed to be priests, prophets, and so forth. It's a doctrine of the Reformation called the priesthood of all believers. You are royalty, and you're a royal priesthood. 1 Peter 2.9 tells us that, that we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession, that we might prophetically, by the Holy Spirit, proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Is everybody following me so far? All right, so that's, that's what we're going to do the next four weeks. And so that is about uh, what you would call the economic Holy Spirit. Now, the last thing under, I'm a uh, Roman numeral six, point C, number two, D, if you're following, so about a quarter of the way down the second page. Uh, it's been a couple people tell me if I point out where we're at in the outline, it helps them sometimes. So I'm trying to do that more often. Um, what, who he is, that is his ontology, and what he does, that is his economy, are all, both inextricably intertwined. Uh, so you can't, uh, again, the simplicity of God applies. We can talk about these things conceptually, but one of the things we're going to see, just like in the creeds, that it, when, when we say the Nicene Creed, it tells us that we worship the Holy Spirit is God, and we worship Him uh, as, you know, the same as the Father and the Son, but that He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and uh, together with the Father and Son, He's worshiped and glorified, but He proceeds from the Father and the Son for to do a job, to do a ministry. And that's what we're going to look at the next four weeks or so. So, they're, they're, again, those concepts... As, as similar to the simplicity of God, those concepts are inextricably intertwined. All right, now, the next concept, so we've talked about the simplicity of God is something you need to understand if we're going to talk about the attributes of God, and that you need to understand that, that when we're talking about God, we want to talk about his ontology, that is, who he is, his being, three persons, one being. Uh, but we also want to talk about what he does. his redemptive and, and other kinds of acts in the earth. Lastly, we want to understand that there's um, what a theologians call non-communicable versus communicable attributes of God. Now, if you've taken our systematic theology class, you may recognize that uh, 
Wayne Grudem doesn't cover this concept of ontology or, or economy, which has led to some theological problems, but uh, let's not get, go there. Um, he does cover this uh, concept of the non-communicable versus the communicable attributes of God. Okay, now, what we mean by that is if we say the non-communicable attributes of God, we're not saying we can't talk about them. We can't communicate about these aspects of God. Uh, you know, Daniel can tell me, God is eternal. And I can say, that's right, Daniel, we can communicate about him. <laughs> or I could say, come again, or whatever, we can, we can talk about it. Okay, but what we mean is we can't catch it. You know, some of you think I'm really, really old, but I'm not eternal. <laughs> and I actually wasn't here when the Earth's crust was still cooling. And uh, I didn't know Noah personally or, <laughs> or anything like that. Um, because uh, I'm very limited in time. So the non-communicable attributes of God are things we cannot become. That God is but creatures aren't. Even though we were made in the image of God, and we will reflect those attributes some, we can never become them. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. The communicable attributes of God are actually when we're born again in Christ, and as we're sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and the sanctifying works of the Scriptures, Acts 8.20 talks about or Acts 8.32, Paul says, um, Now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are being sanctified. One of the reasons we need to delve more fully and completely into God's word is it's a great source of God's grace, and God accomplishes everything he does in our life through his grace, uh, who is Jesus Christ. Grace is a relational word, and the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures apply Jesus Christ to our hearts and our life and build Christ within us. And as God recreates us in Christ, we can catch certain aspects of God. We can become more loving, for example. So let's look at a couple of those, uh, some of the... Um, non-communicable attributes of God. In 1 Timothy 1.17, Paul does something that he often does. He's talking about theology and biblical studies, and he's being very Christological, and he's explaining uh, all the foreshadowings of Christ that have now become made known in the gospel. Uh, all the foreshadowings of Christ from what we would call the Old Testament, they would have just called the scriptures. I, I, I like to call them the Hebrew scriptures. And uh, he's when he's talking about this stuff, sometimes he just breaks into worshiping in the middle of his writing. You know, it's kind of doxological. And he just does, you know, starts singing the doxology. So right out of nowhere in 1 Timothy 1.17, he says, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. Now, interestingly, the King James says the only wise God. And, and so does the New King James. We'll talk about that in a minute. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, um, the better manuscripts don't actually use the word wise there. Uh, and the reason being um, is that Paul is actually talking about a list 
of God's non-communicable attributes. And guess what? Wisdom is a communicable attribute. You can... Now, when we talk about the communicable attributes, what I want you to understand is you can become more of that as you're recreated in Christ and as you're sanctified, but never exhaustively or infinitely like God. So... um, You know, we could say that um, so-and-so is more loving than they used to be because they've progressed in the grace of God and become more Christ-like. But no one would ever be as loving as God himself. You know, Paul, if he wrote Hebrews, John's theory is, you're you're a Paul wrote Hebrew theory person, aren't you? But uh, who knows? No one exactly knows. We'll find it's one of those lists of questions you have for when you go to heaven. But in Hebrews 12, the writer of Hebrews says that we had earthly fathers who disciplined us as best they could, and we were subject to them, but God disciplines us for our actual good, because he's actually a perfect father. And I've said a million times, I one of my top goals in life, before I ever uh, had a wifey, and, with a, and the, before the two of us ever began, by the grace of God, to, to raise four wonderful children... I, I studied on and worked on and tried to change things in my life and cried out to God for grace and sanctification to be a better father. And on the whole, I was probably just okay. Because that's just the nature of, we can become more fatherly, but we can never, in light of God's infinitude, become that great a father. Right? So let's... Look at some of the non-communicable versus communicable. Hopefully you understand that concept. Uh, Eternity. Eternity is not a long, long time. It's above and outside of time. Okay, and if you really think through things logically, something or someone had to be the first mover in the universe. That's why there's a big bang theory among those who are materialist or natural-minded who don't believe in the reality of God or spiritual things, they have to believe some things started somehow. It's inevitable that, that everyone in their head has to work back to something or someone started everything. And the material dimension either is eternal, as a naturalist or materialist, evolutionist in the modern Uh, Western religion would be, or God created the material dimension at at a certain point in time. That's why we, based on Hebrews 11, we say that by faith we know that the world was created in six days by the word of God out of nothing. In theology, you call that creation ex nihilo, out of nothing in Latin. We believe that God created the material dimension, and in fact, if you take the first and second law of, of entropy and so forth, thermodynamics, uh, seriously, if, 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 if matter was eternal, it would have ceased to exist. It was, would have ceased to exist. It's easy for me to say. Uh, because all matter is constantly breaking down and releasing its energy into less and less harnable forms, and therefore, if it was eternal, it would be gone. <laughs> you wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt to run into this oak pew anymore, because matter would have dissipated eternally. There has to be a prime mover. 
Uh, eternity is not a long, long time. It's just outside and above time. Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in man's heart. Uh, immortal is pretty self-explanatory. Immutable, that is, you can't change God. We change all the time. Sometimes by Sunday night, upon further study, especially if I have a good theological person uh, pointing some things out to me, I might change. I might not even believe what I taught Sunday morning by <laughs> Sunday night. That's happened to me a couple times in life, but uh, <laughs> not on a whole sermon or anything. But sometimes a point or two, <laughs> and uh, because we change all the time. Now, as you get older, I don't know if you, you know if this is a characteristic of old age or not, but over time, I like to change less and less. <laughs> uh, change all you can when you're young in a Christ-like direction. Um, I always just like I always when people say I need to change in this or that area, I just say that I'm like God. I don't change. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, omniscient. Now we have some really smart people in our church, and we've uh, begun to really experience what we call building the culture of catechism. It's really uh, something that we try to help people acquire grace by uh, to love to study more comprehensively and fully the whole counsel of God from, from Genesis to Revelation and church history and the, uh, historical theology, biblical theology, systematic theology, and so forth. We want to have a culture of this in our church. However... I don't know anybody who's making any progress toward omniscience. <laughs> Although, sometimes when you're a teenager, you think you're omniscient. <laughs> Mark Twain said he, he left home at the age of 17. When he came back at the age of 25, he was really amazed at how much wisdom his father had acquired in such a short period of time. <laughs> so... Um, you might think you're making progress toward omniscience. That would just mean that you're not very far along in the growth yet. Uh, I, some of you are quite active. I don't know any of you who are making any progress toward being omnipresent. Some of you like to lift weights and get in shape. I don't think any of you are making much progress toward being omnipotent, etc. I don't think any of you are invisible, although sometimes when it comes time to serve or whatever, some of you know how to, <laughs> how to become invisible. <laughs> so, and, and so forth and so on. So, um, one of the things you need to understand is that as humans, as creatures... When it comes to the non-communicable attributes, we can emulate them in a certain sense and grow, but because of our finiteness and God's infinitude, we are always an infinite distance from, making, from those things, and we're never closing the gap. Okay, If you look back, you may think you know a lot more about God than you once did, but if you consider who He is, not so much. We know things accurately because he has revealed himself and he is the God of truth. John, the Gospel of John says that whoever has believed in him has set his seal that God is true. All of our knowledge, the reason we're not agnostics, agnostics say that you could never know anything for sure 
because you could never know everything, and there's always the possibility that some new facts will come to light that, that totally change everything we thought we knew. That's a naturalistic, materialistic, or humanistic way of thinking about knowledge. As Christians, we believe that God has revealed himself in Christ by the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures, and we can know things about God accurately, not because we can know enough about him, but because we trust him. But we can never know them exhaustively. That's a very important thing to understand. Okay, No one completely can explain the love of God. Or as long as this series is going to be about the gospel, it's not a complete series about the gospel. In fact, up on uh, point four on the first page, I mentioned some things I forgot to cover when we were going through that. <laughs> then I'll probably tack on at the end. And even then, it'll still be far from exhaustive or a complete understanding of the gospel. Now, communicable attributes include some things like his holiness. Uh, let, let me finish on non-communicable. So what, just to give a, let me, I think I should probably give an example. For instance, we can be creative because that's a, uh, we're made in God's image, and therefore he is creator in parts with us, but we can't create anything out of nothing. You know, we can be creative, but you're going to start with some things like musical instruments or art supplies or what have you. You can be a creative architect or whatever, but you're not starting out of nothing. So you can never be a creator. Maybe that'll help you understand non-communicable. So um, we can grow in knowledge because that's the nature of God, and it, one of the things it means to love God is to love God with all your mind as well. A non-intellectual Christianity is not a, a biblical Christianity. We're to love God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. So, But we can never make progress on being omniscient. We will always know whatever we know, because... We trust in him. First John uh, 3, 2 through and 4 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So the more you grow in Christ, the more you're actually given hope, and the more hope you have, the more you realize you're going to be Christ-like in all eternity, which is pretty comforting if you've had as many struggles of sin as I have. Anybody ever had any struggles of sin? No, don't show me any hands. <laughs> Whoever didn't raise their hands is either not paying attention or you're a liar. But uh, um, so uh, the more the more you have the hope that someday you're going to be in His presence. And the more you begin to, through worship and other ways of experience in his presence, begin to comprehend him. Uh, well, that's why I advocate, you know, worshiping with a group of people three and four and five times a week. Um, the more you do that, the more you're going to want to become holy. You're going to be highly motivated to become more Christ-like. So, now, let's talk about some special attributes of the Holy Spirit. These are all attributes of God, but they're ones that I think 
that a greater encounter with the Holy Spirit uh, would bring us to some emphasis of, uh, especially in light of our modern times. You know, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer always talked about how he wanted to display Christ wherever darkness was, was you know, pushing forward its agenda. That's why he went back to Germany when he was already out of Germany when Hitler took over. So Ephesians 4.30 tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom we are sealed for the day of redemption. And to me, grief is a very, is one of the most, the deep, one of the deepest, most intimate uh, emotions in life. If you've ever lost people close to you, my Christian life started, I had always prayed for a little brother named John Paul. I had a little brother named John Paul. We were incredibly close, and my Christian life started with his death. And uh, it's something that 40-some years later, sometimes I'll still cry about a little bit if I'm talking about it or something. Or, uh, grief is a deep, personable emotion. So when it says don't grieve the Holy Spirit, uh, if you go back to Genesis 6, it talks about after the sons of God, the godly line that that uh, had come through, Abra- uh, through again Adam to Abel. Or, well, I, he got killed, Seth, and on down all the way through Methuselah to all the way to Noah. Uh, that godly line began to intermarry with the ungodly line, the daughters of men, and that produced a time of great wickedness in the earth. And it says that when God looked from heaven, he was grieved over all of mankind. And he began to grieve so deeply, he regretted that he had even created man. Now, some people have trouble with understanding God had an eternal purpose. He always knew that was going to happen. And it doesn't negate the fact that he was going to still save a remnant and continue to move forward in his covenant purposes with a remnant of people. But just like you're um, uh, capable of seemingly contradictory emotions at the same time, because we're made in God's image, God uh, foreknows and predestines all things. He knows everyone uh, who's going to, to walk with him. He has chosen you, John 15, 16, you didn't choose me, I chose you. But 1 Timothy 2.5 still says that, there's, that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Yet Jacob he loved and Esau he hated before they had done one thing. Right? So in terms of uh, the time of Noah, God was not going to wipe out humanity altogether. But there was a part of God's heart that was deeply grieved that he had made all of the man in the first place. One of the things that we're up against in our culture today is a non-Christian, humanistic, ungodly culture is always uh, pushing towards less personableness. You know, I sometimes get comments from people about how loving our church is and so forth, and I'm I'm thinking, I I sure hope every church would be this loving. Uh, How could, you know... Um, the whole numbers and measuring success by numbers and uh, all of that uh, is part of humanistic man and, and his... Uh, God, God will cause you by the Holy Spirit to measure success one person at a time. God will... The more of the Holy Spirit you have, 
the more reality and community you're going to want to have, the more reality in your marriage you're going to want to have, the more intimacy and relationships, you're not going to be happy with see you on Sunday, Christians. You're going to want something more if, as the Holy Spirit works in your life. Because he will always press for deeper personalness, deeper relationships, more community. There's a reason why the, the community-type church movement that was eventually pretty much wiped out in the 80s by the megachurch movement grew up in the 60s and 70s out of the charismatic movement. Churches that were, that used, you know, when the first churches that were going back to using small groups from house to house and so forth, people said that was crazy and too radical and it was cultic. Now it's very common, <laughs> you know. Um, Lots of churches have small groups and so forth because the Holy Spirit will want reality in relationships. Next thing, that you know, the Holy Spirit is holy. Leviticus 19.2 says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. The more of the Holy Spirit you have, the more desire for holiness you'll have. 1 Peter 1.15 and 16 or 14 and 15, I'm sorry. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the lusts which are yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself in all your behavior, because he is, it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The various lusts of the flesh, for you know, ungodly sexual appetites, ungodly uh, whatever, gluttony, sleep, uh, you name it, the more you, uh, the more you give in to unholiness, the more you deaden and harden your heart against the Holy Spirit, the more you grieve the Holy Spirit. The more of the Holy Spirit you have, the more you're going to want to crucify these things so that you won't grieve the Holy Spirit. The more you're going to seek God for grace to do so, whether that involves having to fast, getting some help with deliverance, whatever, you're going to push through to victory if you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will never be allow you to be satisfied with, well, I'm just a lazy bum, <laughs> or whatever. I'm just addicted to drugs or pornography or something. The Holy Spirit will never allow that. And in fact, the more of the Holy Spirit you have, the more you'll rise up and conquer those kind of things. La thirdly, you'll be spiritual. Uh oh, I'm out of time. Uh, the Holy Spirit is spiritual. God's a spirit. Those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. Uh, maybe I'll cover a little of this next week at the end. Wisdom and knowledge. It, it, is, uh, it is a total oxymoron that charismatic and Pentecostal Christianity has taken the anti-intellectual Christianity of evangelicalism to new heights. That doesn't actually make any sense. It's, 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 you can make sense out of it if you understand the history of the movements and understand how pietism and dispensationalism and so forth emerged to cause modern evangelical Christianity to become anti-intellectual uh, and, and happy with just knowing a few verses and shallow in our understanding of the Bible and so forth. And you understand why Pentecostals and Charismatics took that to whole new extremes. If you understand it, it but, but it's contrary to the person of who the Holy Spirit is, and it ought not to be. The Holy Spirit should came to lead us and guide us into all truth. The more of the Holy Spirit you have, the more of God's Word you're going to want to study. 
almost anyone I've ever led into the baptism in the Spirit, which is probably around a thousand people over the years, uh, has come back saying, boy, I've had the Scriptures really coming alive to me. I have so much of a greater desire to study the Scriptures completely. That should be normative experience in charismatic Pentecostal circles. There's reasons why it's not, but those reasons are not acceptable. Uh, power, a powerless Christianity, which we have today, that's merely abstract and conceptual, is again an oxymoron that shouldn't be. The more of the Holy Spirit you have, the Holy Spirit uh, came to give us power. Um, and I've got a couple verses there that you ought to think about, especially, uh, of course, Acts 1.8, he says you'll receive dunamis, power. The word for power in all these verses is the word dunamis, which we get dynamic or dynamo from, or dynamite. So lastly, I'm way past my time, so um, lastly I just want to say, come Holy Spirit. Um, I would like to challenge us in terms of this we're, you know, we're trying to invite more of us to be more often on Friday nights. Uh, we've grown from about 25 or 30 people coming to about 50. I believe God wants us to have 70 or 80 of our, you know, on Sunday mornings we have 90 people and 80 people and that kind of thing. I believe, and I believe that God wants us to have a season of repenting of the things that we've done to grieve His Holy Spirit. God's visitation of the Holy Spirit is by grace. However, he won't stay where we're not actively welcoming him and seeking him. I love that song, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place with your with atmosphere or something like this. I'm forgetting the, I'm not good at the words of the songs. Um, so that's, that's kind of my final exhortation. I just, I don't want this to be impractical. Many of us are already baptized in the Holy Spirit. Are we staying filled with the Holy Spirit regularly? Many of us uh, have moved in some spiritual gifts. Are we seeking more of that all the time? Are we seeking to live the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Um, are we making room in our lifestyle for who the Holy Spirit is and what he's doing? Have we ever really examined, is God that happy with our priorities about economic things in our life, cars, uh, whatever, neighbors, jobs, pets? Are, are we really making room for the Holy Spirit? Or are we constantly doing things that chase the Holy Spirit out of our homes and out of our, and out of our church? Are we doing the things that would cause us to be separated to the Holy Spirit even more? Amen.